All right, folks, let's go ahead and get started. We're a little behind. I ask you to please take your seats, and we'll launch into our catechism class. Westminster Shorter Catechism. What I should start doing is, uh, oh. Yeah, I think what, uh, what we'll need to do is uh, tell folks every week, come on in, sit down, or I'll start rapping that Westminster Shorter Catechism class uh, song, I mean, shirt. Westminster Shorter Catechism rap that we heard on that first day of class. Uh, you, you don't, yes, you don't want that to happen. All right. Uh, again, the Shorter Catechism, you'll find it in your Trinity Hymnal somewhere around page 869-ish. You may want to turn there or in your small book uh, or whatever it is that you are making use of. And let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word, and in your word is everything that we need for faith and life. Help us to better understand your word as we make use of this tool, the catechism, which instructs us and points us to what it is that you teach. May it increase our understanding and also increase our love for you and for others, and increase our obedience as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are still looking at the, uh, even though it's not labeled as such, what is the introduction section of the catechisms. In fact, uh, today is going to be the last. The first three questions compromise uh, a, a, basically an introduction to the whole of it, and we're going to be seeing that as we go along. But let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to ask if somebody will do this. Why don't we actually read the first three questions so we can see how the three of them flow together? I'm going to ask uh, one person, then another, and another. Uh, just go ahead and just do it, if you will. Will somebody read question number one with the answer? Somebody read number two, please. And today's question, number three. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. All right, thank you so much, folks. That gives us a pretty good idea of how it flows. The very first question tells us that everything that we do and everything we are has to, has to do with God, is directed towards God. We live for God. And then uh, question number two tells us, well, how do we know how we can live for God? I mean, everybody has their own opinion of what that means. Well, we find it in the Bible. And so this question then goes ahead and tells us, well, what is it the Bible teaches us? So that's the flow of these three questions. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit here in the next few minutes. But uh, let's do like we did last week. There are several scripture passages that we're going to be looking up. And what I'm going to do is just uh, tell you them now. And sometime during the whole course of the class, I might just, uh, not the whole course as in the next few weeks, but today, <laughs> whole course of today's session, I'll ask uh, for some of these. So would somebody look up John 20, 30 through 31? Got Matt doing that. John 20, 30 through 31. Very good. Uh, will somebody else look up Micah 6, 8? Micah, you got that? Okay. Do I have someone... 
Who will take? Let's see. Let's see what the next one is. Round and round it goes. Nope, not there. Uh, John four twenty two. John four twenty two through twenty four. Okay, that's taken. How about Matthew seven eighteen? This is, this is uh, probably going to be the key passage we look at today. Matthew seven eighteen. Any takers? Another one in the back. And lastly, if we can, uh, actually, no, we got a, quite a few more, don't we? Um, James two fourteen, two seventeen. Okay, two fourteen and two seventeen. And um, let's hold off there. I doubt we'll be able to get much further today. There's a lot that we could do on this, but all right. So the question then tells us, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, before we jump in, let me just give you a very quick little aside. This is the beauty of good catechisms, good confessions, those that have stood the test of time, those that have been um, used again and again and have been proven again and again, and that is that they work on so many different levels. A question like this immediately tells you if you've got no background in Scripture, if you're brand new to the faith, if you're new to the study of doctrine, it immediately tells you that the Bible tells us this is what you need to know about God this is what God wants you to know about your obedience, and so on. And it immediately gives us a very simple, succinct answer. What does the Bible teach us primarily, not only, but primarily, what we're to believe concerning God, what duty God requires of us, what our obedience is to be, and so on. And yet the minute you start thinking about that, you get to another level. You begin to realize, oh, it doesn't say everything that we're to know about God, but only that much that God chooses to reveal that he wants us to know, right? And you begin to see that there are layers to what you can see in the catechism. That's the beauty of this sort of thing. It's not something that, oh yeah, this is just meant for kids. And it is true that the shorter catechism was written primarily for kids, the larger primarily for adults. But even as we work through this, you'll see that there are layers of, of uh, depth that we can uh, uh, Study and learn as we unfold what it teaches us about the Bible. So let's see if we can't uh, dig a few layers into this one and see what it's teaching us. Well, one of the things that first we realize is the Bible doesn't teach everything. Uh, there's a movement that's been around, I don't know how long, but sometimes called the Biblicism. A person is a Biblicist. And there's some caricatures regarding that. Uh, when we teach sola scriptura, that our faith is based only on what we, in terms of authority, only on what the Bible teaches, some people will say, well, that's a biblicist because you don't want to look anywhere else. And usually when you hear that criticism, it's coming from folks who have a, uh, a lower view of the inspiration of Scripture, which we talked about last week, the idea that Scripture is God's Word. And they try to say, well, you know, you can learn from, you got to pull from Scripture, but you also have to pull from other things and whatever. And when we sit there and say sola scriptura, the scripture alone is our authority, not the Pope or our own views or anything of that nature, then we get accused of being biblicists. But that's not at all what we mean. 
Uh, we teach that the Scripture is our sole authority, but we don't believe, for example, that Scripture teaches us everything that can be known. And there are some folks who actually have held that view over the years. So, for example, uh, Scripture doesn't teach us. Uh, scripture mentions, for example, a lot of things like bronze. It mentions weapons made of bronze. It does not tell us how to make bronze, right? If you want to figure out what, so what's bronze? You all know, copper and tin, right? Those two in an alloy and get put together. Uh, okay, that's not explained in Scripture, nor the actual process of how to do it. You've got to figure that out on your own. There are ways and things that we can learn outside of Scripture. So it doesn't tell us all scientific facts, and it doesn't tell us even all the events of human history. Uh, it doesn't tell us that Queen Elizabeth II was the longest reigning monarch in British history. It doesn't tell us everything, right? So this seems kind of obvious, but we've got to start with that. The Scripture does not tell us those things. In fact, it does not even tell us everything about what it does discuss, so it doesn't tell us everything about the life of Jesus, for example. We do not know very much about his childhood. That is not contained in the scriptures. It tells us absolutely nothing at all about his physical appearance. We know nothing about what he looks like, despite all the pictures and everything else that people say is that's the image of Jesus. We have absolutely no idea what it is. It does not tell us at all why Jesus didn't like asparagus. We know that he didn't because... <laughs> We won't like asparagus in heaven, so why would Jesus? Okay. So there's a lot of things in Scripture, even things within, that are not contained, that, uh, I mean, subjects that are contained therein, which are not uh, um, fleshed out to satisfy our curiosity. But I think what is very important for us to pick up on, however, is the fact that the Scripture does have something to say about everything. And it's here that we start going down to those deeper levels. Because what we've been seeing in that flow from question one, two, and three has been really a worldview that we've been putting together, right? Question one has been telling us that everything that we do, everything that we do has to do with God. And everything about our life has to be lived in relationship with God, right? That's what we saw in question one, that there isn't any area of life, your personal, your work, your relationships, your recreation, nothing, as we saw, is to be lived in a way apart from God. Everything is to be lived in relationship with God. Now, we'll study later in the catechism. We'll begin to look at sinfulness and how we try to break away from God and all that other stuff. But that's what question one sets up for us. When we looked at question number two, we began to see how Scripture is God speaking to us. And we saw last week the necessity of God speaking. God must speak to us. It's not even because of our sinfulness. We already saw that Adam had to have explicit word revelation. God had to speak his word to Adam in order for Adam to know how to live a life that was glorifying to God. It's impossible for us to live a life in relationship with God without God speaking to us. And what we're going to see again today, and see, once we understand those two, as we saw last week, it begins to shape how we live our life. We're going to see the same thing here with Scripture. What the Scripture is and what it teaches, again, 
really, really shapes our worldview. So at one level, we can just simply, you know, tell the kids, oh, it teaches us all about God, and it teaches us, well, not all about God, but what God wants us to know about him, and it teaches us what God wants us to do in response to who he is, right? But there's so much there that we want to see. And I'm going to start by saying this. Even though the scripture doesn't tell us how to make bronze or doesn't tell us calculus or doesn't tell us how to bake a souffle or cook a, I don't know, do you bake a souffle, cook a souffle, souffle a souffle, I don't know, whatever. Uh, anybody want to help me on that one? Bake, you bake it. Okay, so I wasn't too far off on my first seat. But scripture doesn't tell us how to do that, but it does have something to say about how you can bake a souffle in a Christian way. You've heard me talk about that before in other settings. You've heard me say there is a Christian way to change diapers. There's a Christian way to be a school teacher. There's a Christian way to be a politician. There's a Christian way to be a father. There's a Christian way to be a did I say school teacher already? I did. Two school teachers right there. So I said it twice, one for each. So, well, they're they're both right there. Okay. So you get the idea. All these different things that we do, there are Christian ways of doing it. And I will go so far now as to say that in reality, when we try to understand the world around us, you cannot understand the world truly without Scripture. That is actually what this catechism question teaches us. You cannot understand the world around us without Scripture. In fact, um, I'll go so far as to say that you will always arrive at the wrong conclusions. And let's see if we can't flesh that out a little bit. Let's take someone, uh, it just could be yourself, you're studying. Um, I don't know, I'm looking outside. I see the, the, the trees are still green. So you choose to study why the leaves are green, right? So you begin to look at the, um, uh, the biology of trees, and you learn that there is chlorophyll in the trees. The chlorophyll is what gives it the green color and so on. So, you know, you're, you're doing that kind of study. And what I'm going to say is you really cannot understand that, or that's a scientific thing. Let's say you're studying history. You want to understand the history of, uh, of uh, Africa. So you begin to look at that world history. Or you begin to try to understand uh, geography. Whatever it is that you are studying, you will not be able to arrive at correct conclusions without what Scripture teaches. If you do not believe, right, the very first part of the question, that we are to believe certain things about God. These are, this is who God is, this is what he's doing, and so on and so on. If you do not believe these things, you will arrive at the wrong conclusion. Let's take a look. Oh, you know what? I didn't ask for this passage, did I? Yeah. Can I have somebody look up Psalm 100? Seven one o seven. One hundred seven verses ten and eleven. If you'll read that. Okay, so. Here, it characterizes rebellion against God as being in the darkness. In this case, it talks about sitting. You, you squat in darkness. You're unable to see. You're without the light. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that when our inner light 
our inner eye he's talking about. He's talking about our ability to see with understanding. He's not literally talking about our physical eyes and ability to see. When that becomes occluded with sin, he says, how great is that darkness? And he puts it in that, that kind of categorical language. Uh, the inability to see because of our sin is huge. Um, it affects our ability to understand. That when you're out there trying to study those leaves or trying to study uh, the history of Africa, unless you take into account certain things, like the simple fact that God is a creator, then you're simply not going to arrive at the right conclusion. You might say, well, but we can see people who are unbelievers put things together. They'll tell us that you, there's chlorophyll in those trees, but they won't be able to tell you why that chlorophyll is there. They won't be able to tell you how it got there. They won't be able to tell you why it, it particularly chose to, um, uh, to be green and, and so on and what have you. They can't to begin to answer, then how does your eye see it? Because as you, as you guys know, nothing is actually green or red or purple or whatever. The colors are really just that light of a certain wavelength hits those objects that gets reflected, or in this case, sunlight, which is all the different wavelengths within visible spectrum, hits that object, right? Only certain colors, certain wavelengths get reflected back. And then we have these mechanisms, these eyeballs, that are sensitive within a narrow band. So the scientist or the person who's studying that has to explain that and how that eyeball is finely tuned to be able to pick that up and so on and so on and so on. They're not able to explain those things. I'm just taking one simple example that's just happened in the last 200 years, the introduction of the idea of evolution that the world came into being without, without God. Uh, we can go much further back. There's been plenty of heresy and people not believing properly before that. But just using that one example, that scientist is unable to really, he might be able to mention a few facts, but he can't put them together into a cohesive whole. It doesn't take him very long to arrive at wrong conclusions. And you might walk away and say, well, at least I learned that it's chlorophyll that makes it green, but that's all you got out of it. So without the scripture, and without understanding what it teaches us, you can't even understand things rightly. So we're seeing that right from the very beginning. Uh, let me go on and move on to some of the, the consequences of what that means. Uh, let's jump and see if we can look at Okay, so I'm just going to read this myself. Uh, but when you turn back to the Scripture, right, the Scripture is telling us, here's what you have to know about God, here's what you have to know about your obedience. We're just focusing on that first part, who God is. Once you begin to believe what the Scripture actually teaches, then to continue with that metaphor, the light is, uh, the darkness is removed because you have light that you can shed. And again, not physical light, but it's your understanding is opened up. That which gets darkened by sin, which we'll study a little later in the catechism, uh, is removed and we're able to begin to understand. So, for example, Psalm 119, uh, verse 130 says, the entrance of your words gives light. And then that famous verse, just a few, a little bit later, your word is a lamp unto my feet. And so this idea then that we get light coming um, in, in a spiritual, uh, uh, cognitive way that enables us to be able to see and to understand. You know, I was, just, I was just making up examples. I said the history of Africa. 
Again, if a person doesn't take into account that we were created by God, uh, that we rebelled against God, sociologists and anthropologists will try to explain why are the dynamics happening in uh, a continent like Africa. And of course, they're going to already posit that, uh, that we came from Lucy and some you know, little um, a hominid in, uh, somewhere in the Horn of Africa. So that's their first mistake. But even as they look at just the interactions and everything, they'll try to figure out why is this tribe trying to kill that tribe? And why did this happen and that happen? And why today is Africa unable with all its rich resources uh, to, to rise up and, and move to that next level of industrialization. And every one of their conclusions will be wrong because they don't take into account the things that Scripture teaches. For example, things like our relationships are being broken because of sin. They won't be able to, to see that. They'll have wrong presuppositions. They might start with, well, everybody's just neutral, everybody's just good until something happens, and, and so on and so on. Uh, they'll write. A perfect example of that today, um, and I don't mean to break this into a political discussion, uh, and I didn't um, plan on doing this when I just threw out a history of Africa, but you hear people today asking for reparations for slavery in the United States, right? Um, one of the facts that gets conveniently skipped over is that who started the slave trade in Africa? Africans, yeah. You, know, you conquer this tribe and you take some of their people, just like the Mayans did. Right? Ninth century in, in Central America. Okay? Just like the Aztecs would later do in the Incans and so on, uh, closer to the time of, of Columbus and so on. But the point simply being is those are inconvenient facts, so those get set aside. These narratives, as they get called, get introduced that are incomplete because we don't look at the whole of Scripture. But why would a tribe fight another tribe? I thought everybody was happy. No, because there's sin. And it doesn't matter whether they have advanced atomic weapons or they have rocks. We read right in, in um, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4 that we're going to figure out ways to harm one another and to even kill one another and so on. Again, you need the Scripture to be able to arrive at all these right conclusions. So our time is slipping away, so let me just uh, hold it at that. There's so much more that can be said there. But the bottom line is you simply cannot know truly anything. You cannot arrive at any con correct conclusions unless you go to Scripture. So again, even though Scripture does not teach everything, Scripture has something to say about everything. And everything that you study and everything that you talk about and everything that you learn can be informed through Scripture. And like I said, everything that you do, uh, whether you, know, you want to do parenting, are you going to follow Dr. Spock? And I'm, that's not Spock from Star Trek. That's Dr. Benjamin Spock, who is probably the father of modern child rearing. Uh, by the way, his book came out. Anybody know what, at least what decade it came out? I heard what? 70s. 70s yep, late 60s. Late 60s, uh, early 70s. Uh, so we've now had 50 years of Benjamin Spock's um, uh, theories being put into practice in public schools and in homes everywhere. As you can see, children today are much better behaved. Everybody grows. We have thriving societies, booming. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, you, you can see the effects of Benjamin Spock's child rearing because he did not take into account certain presuppositions which are in Scripture, and so on and so on. We can go on. So let's go ahead and just stop there for now. Sorry, there's just so much exciting stuff that we can be talking about here. But 
let's go ahead and take a look then at some other aspects that we see in the catechism question. And one of the things that we see is when it breaks up into these two parts, right? It ta- the first part tells us, here's what you've got to know about God. And by the way, it doesn't say everything about God, but simply what God reveals. So there's a limit to what God reveals. And then everything, and, and by this, it's, it's, you know, who he is, what he's done for us how he did it. These are all things that we're going to see in Scripture, right? And as a result, there's a response. Once you learn about who God is and our relationship to him and so on, and by the way, it does talk about both, even though it might say, well, does it tell you anything here in the catechism question about man, that we're supposed to learn about man? But as you learn about God, you learn that he created man and that he expects certain things out of man and so on. So, John Calvin actually said this in his Institutes. It doesn't matter where you start. If you start with God, you'll end up having to study man because of the idea that God created man. But even if you start with man, sooner or later, because we're made in God's image, if you're thinking properly, scripturally, you'll eventually have to talk about God. And so that connection is not lost. So don't sit there and say, well, it doesn't have anything to say about man. But it does say what man is to believe, uh, uh, what man's duty is towards God. So, you might actually, you know what, better than, better than saying God. It does teach us about God, but let's put it in these categories. Faith and duty. Faith and obedience might even be a better way of putting it, right? Let's put it that way. Faith and obedience. And in the first part, what is it that we're supposed to believe regarding God and his creation and man and everything else? And in the second part, what is our response, how we're supposed to obey? And it's interesting that the catechism, question, uh, the catechism uh, structure from this point on with the questions breaks down along these lines. Starting with question four that we'll look at next week, we begin to look at this. And questions four through 37 tells us about who God is, what he's done for us, and so on. And then question 38 through the end, 107, tells us how we are to respond in obedience. Uh, if some of you were raised with the Heidelberg Catechism, um, if you're in, the, in Reformed churches, then you know it follows that same similar pattern. It starts with your, somebody know? What's the three G's? Yep. Right? Gratitude, there we go. Somebody who's been in a good Reformed church. Starts with our guilt. It actually begins by laying out that we're fallen, how Jesus responds to that, and then it tells us how we are to respond in gratitude. So you see a similar uh, breakdown here in this catechism. So this is going to be, why don't we put it up there, questions 4 through 38. I'm sorry, 37. Ah, 38 through 107, there we go. So that gives you a breakdown of how that works. But even with that, there's some things that I think are very important that we can pick out here. Let's see. Um, The order 
even in which that's presented is important because again, it's a worldview issue. What you believe, let's just talk about faith, makes a huge difference in how you obey. And just like we were saying a moment ago that unless you believe, you can't really understand anything. Unless you believe the things that scripture teaches, uh, you can't understand things. By the same token, we're gonna say that unless you believe, you cannot do anything properly. So the two things that human beings do, we think and we act. According to this catechism question, you're unable to do those unless you properly understand what the scripture teaches. You cannot think properly and understand the world around you, but you can't also act properly and do the things that you're supposed to do. Now, that sounds at first crazy, but it's simply this. The catechism is teaching us that, well, let me go back. People today teach that it doesn't matter what you believe, that you can be a good person, right? You just have to uh, believe in something that gives you inspiration or uh, uh, pushes you to a, to a higher way of living. And as long as your behavior is a certain way, then you're okay. Now, the first question comes up is who defines what behavior is okay? Right? A lot of the people today that go around saying that are saying that because they grew up in a culture that has been suffused with Christianity so that it has a heritage of being able to say, this is right, this is right, this is right, this is not right, this is not right, this is not right. And that's changing. As the scripture has been pulled out from our culture, we're now saying that dressing up like a, like a woman, if you're a man, and pretending that you're actually a woman, that that's okay. And, our, and it, it, look how quickly it just turned. It went from being a joke to literally the next week. We have to take them seriously when they're in the workplace and in political office. <laughs> We're supposed to look at them and call her, him, a her, right? It goes to show you, you cannot obey properly unless you think and believe properly. You're simply unable to do it. Uh, G.I. Williamson, in his commentary on the catechism, quotes from Alexander Pope. That was that uh, 18th century, early 18th century English poet. Pope once wrote, For points of faith, let senseless bigots fight. His can't be wrong, whose life is in the right. And he was arguing it doesn't matter what you believe. Let, let the senseless bigots fight over what you believe as long as your behavior and your life is right. And, of course, that's complete nonsense. Uh, boy, we really have skipped all the passages I was asking you guys to look up, right? <laughs> We've had to get through some, some of this stuff. Did I ask anybody to look up Second John 9? No, I don't think I did. Let me just read that briefly. Uh, and then I did ask somebody to look up John 4, 22. So 2 John 9 uh, says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. And whoever has John 4, 22, will you read that, please? Could you also read verse 24? 
Yeah, in verse 24, if you don't mind. All right, so it's made very clear that if you do not have the right doctrine, if you do not have the right understanding, then it doesn't matter how sincere you are, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're simply not going to arrive not only at the right conclusions, but even at the right behavior. You will not be able to worship God in a way that he finds satisfactory. Uh, Think of it this way. You'd say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you please God. Right? Because that's essentially what we're saying. But how do you know what pleases God? It, become, it comes down again to the question from last week, what is your authority in life? And so certain people say that it pleases God if you kill infidels. Okay, right? There are certain people that believe that. There are certain people that believe that it pleases God if you do this, that, or the other. But God has a very, very clear list of those things that please him and very, very clear list of those things that do not please him. And he has revealed that truth. Where, by the way, do we find that summarized? Anyone? The law. law, And specifically the Ten Commandments. Yes, the Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law, which is why it's covered later in the Catechism. So you have here a very, very clear outline of what it is that God that pleases God. And so it doesn't matter what you think. See, again, it, comes, it becomes an issue of authority. Well, I don't believe that. Uh, how many times did you hear somebody saying, well, my God wouldn't do that? All right, let's, th- let's take something that, you know, okay, we can all talk about murder. That's an easy one. Fairly easy until Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and kicks you in the shins and tells you, even when you sit there and say, ah, I don't like him. Okay, you've just committed murder in your heart. Let's take something... Um, like the fourth commandment, right? Keeping of the Sabbath. And there's a lot of people who sit there and say, well, that seems so strict. It doesn't fit my conception of what pleases God. And again, what are you doing? You're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Thank you, God, for your advice on what's best for the human race. But we think we know what's best. And you see, it always comes right down to that. Your authority pitted against God's authority. And that's what we see here. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. The catechism question presents it this way because you will not be able to do this properly until you do this properly. You cannot obey, you cannot please God until you believe the things about God that he's revealed in Scripture, who he is, what pleases him, and so on. You see that connection and how that flows? Okay, we're still running out of time. Still having to cut a few corners here and there. Uh, did I ask somebody to look up Matthew seven eighteen? Who did Matthew seven eighteen? Okay. Okay, so Jesus is essentially affirming what we're saying. If you don't have the right beliefs, if you don't have those things as the core of who you are, what you produce 
can't be things that are pleasing to God. Uh, he, he basically says this is the bad tree. So if there are certain things that you believe about God that, you don't, um, that don't line up, uh, and, and it may be simply you don't believe that God exists, right? Everybody thinks that's the easy one, an atheist. But you got our neighbors next door. They believe in, in God, but their conception of who God is is radically different, though they'll tell you that it's the same God of Abraham that Jews and Christians believe. Jews do not have the same conception of God that Christians have. Well, but it's Judeo-Christian. It's all the same. God may have spoken to Israel, but when they chose to reject the Son, we just finished reading in 2 John 9. Did we not? If I can find it. Right? Whosoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. And there's many other passages. In fact, the whole book of 1 John is this idea that unless you acknowledge Jesus for who he is, then you're unable to truly get to God or to know God. So you get the idea that your understanding of God is limited. Jews do not have a conception of a triune God. Muslims do not have a conception of a triune God, just to use one example. And that is very clearly at the heart of Christian belief. It's, by the way, why we start with a Trinitarian confession at the beginning of our worship. I don't know if you've noticed that. But every Sunday, we make sure that it's clear that it is the triune God as he is revealed uh, that we worship. And that distinguishes us from everybody else. And so the catechism is making it very, very clear that without that proper understanding, then you are a bad tree. And that bad tree will produce bad fruit. You will not be able to please God. You can stand up all day in the judgment and say, but I did my level best. I was absolutely sincere in my belief and in my behavior you will not have been able to obey. Now, let's flip that the other way because we're just about out of time. The catechism also teaches that it's not just simply you can't do this without this, but this faith must have that obedience. I guess I'm spelling it out because I think this might be recorded uh, and I think it's audio only. So here I am pointing it up here saying this and that and they're not understanding what we're talking about. But there is, um, you've heard the term dead orthodoxy. You could sit there and affirm all those different doctrines and say, I believe them all. They all make sense. But if they don't equate into obedience, then again, the catechism question is telling us there's a significant failure there. Somebody read, uh, did I ask somebody to do James 2.17? Or uh, James 2.14? Would you please uh, read that? Yes, if you would. Thank you so much. So that's that famous <clears throat> couple of verses in James that has uh, been so misunderstood, but all James is really saying is, there is no such thing as faith that does not issue forth into obedience. That's really all the catechism question is saying. It's saying that not only does Scripture teach these things, but there's an order to them. When you believe the right things, it will lead to the right obedience. 
if you've truly understood them and you truly has changed you in the heart. Remember, why can you understand the right things? Because, and we'll see this actually explained in the catechism, but the Holy Spirit has enabled you to see properly. And in that transformation enables us to see the world properly. It also enables us to behave properly. Yes, we're not there perfect, perfectly. Yes, there's still indwelling sin. But those two things, being able to see and obey, are part of that transformation. You hear people saying, I accept Jesus as Lord, but not uh, a Savior, but not as Lord, and other nonsense like that. Uh, the idea that I understood my need for salvation, understood my need for my sin to be cleansed, and so I grab a hold of Jesus, but I don't accept him as Lord, I don't change my behavior. That's nonsense. You can't do one without the other. And so, again, if you can't obey without having faith, you cannot have real true faith unless there is a commensurate obedience that flows out of it. Again, if you are that good tree, you are going to produce good fruit. Good trees always produce good fruit. Trees without fruit are not good trees. Sir? Ah, well, there's a... Yes, so, so notice what we're saying here. We're not saying you need faith and obedience to be saved, right? You're saved by what Christ did. Let's just put that under here. And you grab a hold of what Christ did through faith. What we're saying is, if you did that, it will issue forth in obedience. So what James is saying in that passage is not, you need to do both, and then God looks at them and says, oh, you believed in Jesus and you've been a good person. That's all I need, right? Our Muslim neighbor will say, well, I was a good person, and we're saying, no, you couldn't even do that, right? But even the person who tries, we're not saying you need to do both. We're saying if you've believed, if you have been truly saved by grace through faith alone, then you will obey. So, again, I look and Jesus is, is giving us very, very simple metaphors. He's saying you have to look at the fruit, and the fruit is not there. In fact, First John, again, going back to First John, uh, tells us that if the fruit is not there, then you can question whether the belief is right and, uh, and, and whether the belief is there. So if a person consistently shows no fruit, you might say, well, clearly bad fruit. You know, they're, they're little hellions. They're running around and causing all sorts of relationship problems and destruction and so on, well, that's an easy person to look and sit there and say they don't believe, they've not been saved. But the person who seems neutral and doesn't show any evidence, then it doesn't matter. They can sit there and say all day that they believed, but it doesn't issue forth in obedience. So, yes, we are saved by, well, we're not saved by our faith. Let me just be clear there. I know that's not what you were saying, but I'll take this opportunity to say that here. Faith doesn't save you. If faith saved you, there's people who have faith in all sorts of things, right? What saves you? Christ saves you. He's the one who accomplishes your salvation. But you grab a hold of that faith, uh, sorry, you grab a hold of that salvation by faith. And by faith alone, not by, I'm going to grab a hold of that salvation and I'll throw in some of the things I did. No, you grab a hold of that salvation by faith alone. It's also by grace alone. Christ does it because you're not worthy, but it's simply by grace. So, but once that is done, if that actually happens, 
It's only because you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated, and that enables you to grab a hold of Christ. But it also is part of a wider transformation that then leads to right behavior. If you look, and we'll end with this uh, here, if you look at Ephesians 2, we won't have time to do that right now, but verses 1 through 2, you know, the first three verses are those famous verses, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked and so on, and it shows the bad news. Then verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And it goes on to say that we've been saved by Christ, right? And it tells us in verses 7 through 8, this is not by faith. Uh, I'm sorry, this is not by works, lest anyone should boast. And it's all by faith. And then verse 10, so that you can walk in the good works for which you were created in Christ Jesus. In the end, obedience is the end goal. What can't we not do? We can't obey outside of Christ. That's what brought us into the sinful, in the sinful state. We looked at God and we said, we want to do what we want to do, not what you want. That's sin. And so when we are saved, we are given the ability to obey. And that's the point. The obedience must follow. Many, many years ago, uh, 2007, we planted a church in Denton. In 2006, we brought the church planter who was going to do that. And... Um, we had certain people who had been here at the church, and I had just arrived in 2005. And there was a, a gentleman with us um, who I didn't get to know very well because within less than a year, he was off with that group in 2006. They went and, uh, I should say the 2007 is when the church was particularized, but they, they got started in 2006. So off he went, he and his family, because they lived in that area. Uh, but until they were on their own, um, the uh, the church planter still came and reported to our session, and one time he came and he said, Mr. X, uh, let's just call him uh, Mr. Johnson. I don't think we have any Johnsons here, right? So we'll make up a name. So Mr. Johnson has um, has walked away from the faith. And, you know, we have to deal with all that and so on. Uh, but it was interesting. He wrote a letter explaining why he was walking away from the faith, and he said, you know, the uh, previously, the the, the scripture passages, uh, I'm sorry, the sermons were very clear in scripture. There was a beauty to, to the Reformed faith. I was attracted as a person who likes philosophy and so on. I was attracted to that. It really made perfect sense. I thought there was a beauty in the, the Reformed system. And then your new pastor came and he began to uh, teach that you also have to obey that. <laughs> it has consequences. And I figured, well, I don't believe any of that. I'm not going to do this stuff. And so I went with the church planter, and then he continued also preaching that I have to obey that. In other words, for whatever reason, and this is not a knock on whoever preceded me, he may just not have heard it because there's different styles that present things in different ways. But all he saw was this, and he says, what a beautiful system. And the minute we started challenging him to live it out, he's like, oh, I don't actually believe this because it's not doing any. He had enough intellectual integrity to then sit there and say, I don't believe it. I have to Step away from the faith. That's what we're talking here. If it's actually changed who you are, then it will issue forth uh, in obedience. So when you look at that tree, you're going to see that tree. If it produces no fruit, one season, and we all have moments, right? So one season, nothing happens. Okay, it can happen. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. Next season, no fruit. Next season, no fruit. Next season, no fruit. What do you start to conclude? It's a bad tree or a dead tree. So, okay, 10-10, we need to stop here. I know we started late, uh, so we're finishing late, but...
Um, very, very important catechism question in that it really sets the stage. Faith and obedience, those two things, and how closely tied. You cannot understand anything unless you properly understand what the Scripture teaches. It sheds light, to use that metaphor, on everything around us and enables us to see and to understand everything properly in its proper relationships and arrive at the right conclusions about any topic. And by the same token, once you believe that, it's going to change your, uh, your, your character and your behavior. And so you're going to behave in certain ways. And the flip side of that is you cannot behave in a right way. You cannot please God. You won't be able to stand before God on the judgment day and say, I tried my level best unless you believe the things that are in Scripture. So, again, catechism question, very important setting the stage. Any last-minute thoughts or questions? Nope, all good stuff. All right, next week we will actually dive in to theology proper, and we're going to ask the question, what is God? So that's going to be a fun one. All right, let me pray with you all. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly in your word. Uh, you have uh, at times spoken in, in ways that are not written down, so we know that you have spoken to uh, well, Adam and Eve before the fall and to the prophets uh, after the fall. Some of it has been uh, written down for us and some of it has not, but Father, you have written down or have had written down for us everything that is necessary for us to understand about who you are and what you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and how we are to respond in gratitude through our obedience and all that is laid out for us in scripture. We thank you that you care so much about us that you bothered uh, to speak. We did not deserve it as uh, we've just were reminded. Um, this is all part of your salvation, your redemption, not just of us individually, but the whole of this world that you care and love, love us enough to have spoken truth to us, salvific truth. Help us as we dive further into your word to see just how important it is for faith and life, for how we, uh, how we live day to day and how we understand the things around us. Uh, may it truly shape our worldview. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.